Hello, Mission Fellowship. This is Pastor Hans. I'm coming to you in a bit of a different format today because unfortunately, the sermon from last week, January 26th, had some tef- technical difficulties and was not recorded. A few folks asked if I could simply re record my sermon, and so I'm going to do that to the best of my ability now. Uh, we apologize for the lower quality, but sometimes these things do happen. So I hope it's still edifying for you and that the Lord might use it in your life. Our main text today, if you want to follow along, will be in Mark 5, but if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 28, we will start there today. Are any of you old enough to remember the book entitled This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti? At the end of the 1980s, Mr. Peretti wrote a couple of fictional books on the topic of spiritual warfare. His goal, I'm guessing, was out of a good heart to reintroduce the topic in the midst of a society that had so embraced postmodernism that we had largely dismissed the idea of a spiritual realm at all. And I'm sure that that was his intent, and it was a good one. But I can still remember reading that book about a New Age plot, backed by demonic forces waging warfare in a small town against the Christians. As I lay awake at night thinking about the book, every corner of my room was filled with demons and buffed-out Navy SEALs waiting to fight them. Needless to say, it was a very low point in my theology. And just to be clear, I would not recommend getting your views on spiritual warfare from Christian fiction authors. But one thing I'm thankful for is that it opened my eyes to warfare in the spiritual realm. This is a topic we should know, but not in the way I was made aware of those many years ago. Our text today will discuss the topic of the spiritual realm and the warfare that exists between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And what we will see is that while there is a war going on, Scripture is quite clear that Jesus has the authority over the kingdom of darkness. To understand the gravity of this statement and how it plays out in us, we need to first understand, our first point today, the biblical theme of spiritual kingdoms warring in the flesh. Now, Last week, we learned to look at this warfare through the lens of order and chaos. And we learned then that Jesus has authority over a chaotic creation. Admittedly, we know very little about that chaotic rebellion's origin. God is the God of order, and yet, somewhere in the midst of eternity past, something went wrong and shifted from order to chaos. Now, there are many different theories as to when that occurred. But good exegesis of the Bible sticks with what we do know. It doesn't focus on conspiracy. So regardless of the theory of when it happened, Scripture does give us some breadcrumbs to help us understand what happened. It tells us that there was indeed some form of spiritual rebellion, and that rebellion played out into the physical realm. We see it right away in Adam and Eve and the serpent in Genesis 1-3. through In Genesis 1, God gave them the job of being his sub-regents, or sub-king and queen, that had dominion over an area, and in so doing, represented, as his image bearers, his dominion and authority. Then we see, as we learned last week, this serpent character who's symbolic of the idea of a chaos monster, one in rebellion against God's ordered design. He's operating to undo or subvert the command and authority of God. And right in the first three chapters of the Bible, we see warfare in the spiritual realm entangled with fighting in an earthly garden, the spiritual realm operating in the physical realm. It is similar to the idea of a proxy war. Now, many of you might be a, a, might know about this idea of proxy war, but for those of you that don't, it's when two larger nation-states engage in warfare through another conflict between two smaller nation-states, 
You can think about Russia and the United States warring over North and South Korea at the beginning of the Cold War. Similarly, the heavenly conflict is played out in the earthly realm as two kingdoms waging war against one another. This spiritual proxy war rages and continues in the midst of earthly kingdoms. Psalm 2, which Patrick read earlier, portrays this proxy war quite well. The nations, at the instigation of the adversary of God, rage against God's ordered design and authority. It says in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and plot in vain against God? He laughs at them because his son will be king. Let me read to you now from Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces, like a potter's vessel. We even see this interplay in the midst of somewhat confusing text in the midst of the poets and the prophets. You remember the story of Job, right? In the first chapter, it has this odd scene where Satan is allowed to come before God. Take a look at Job 1.6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Satan comes and accuses the righteous like Job. And the rest of the book displays this heavenly conflict between God and his adversary, carried out in the earthly suffering of Job. The spiritual carried out in the physical. Turn with me to Ezekiel 28 for another example. You might already be there, but in Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 1, it says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a god, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man, and no god, though you make your heart like the heart of, of a god. You are indeed wiser than Daniel, no secret is hidden from you, but your wisdom and your understanding you have made wealth for yourself, and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade you have increased your wealth, and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a god, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a god, in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no god, in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Notice that the first half of this is speaking about an earthly royal, a human, the prince of Tyre. It's interesting that it says prince there. But then in verse 11, it will switch and become very odd. Notice what it says there. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Now notice the hierarchy there, king versus prince, the prince being under the authority of the king. And say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. That's interesting. He was in Eden. How could this prince, this human, that Ezekiel was speaking a prophecy against, have been in Eden? Well, then he goes on. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper. 
sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst, and it consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all those who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. As I said in verse 11, it switches and becomes very odd. Speaking of the Garden of Eden and beautiful craftsmanship, calling him the guardian cherub. In almost unanimous voice, the early church fathers believe this to be discussing this overlaying of heavenly battle with that of earthly power and warfare. You can find a similar statement about the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, but for the sake of limited time this, uh, today, we won't go there. Well, then turn with me to Revelation 12, and we'll see this again. In Revelation 12, starting in verse 1, we see this. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now this obviously is picturing Israel, and it's similar to language used in the dream of Joseph back in Genesis to describe uh, the tribes that will come from him. Verse 2, she was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And another sign reappeared in heaven, uh, excuse me, appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Now those are crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth, and the dragon stood before that woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? From Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah who would rule with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, don't get into the numbers here. We don't want to pay too much attention to that this morning. But what we want to do is look at the massive apocalyptic symbolism used here to again speak of this interplay between the heavenly realm and that of earth. The woman is Israel, and she is at war with who? Well, the chaos monster, the serpent, Satan, who has caused a heavenly rebellion, which is that statement of a third of the stars, which speaks of angels cast out of the presence of God. This chaos that we talked about last week. And the woman gave birth to a male child, Jesus, the Messiah, who will rule those nations with a rod of iron. That child born and then ascended to the throne of God symbolically encompasses the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Throughout scripture, we see this theme of heavenly warfare coming to earth and the interplay between the spiritual and the physical. The kingdom of darkness confronted by the kingdom of light. And this is why in Mark 1.15, Jesus could say, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In the incarnate Jesus, the heavenly kingdom of Yahweh was present with man. Not since Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2 had this been the case. You see, the heavenly becomes physical. The spiritual becomes incarnation. 
In Christ, the kingdom and reign and authority of Yahweh was present. And in our text from Mark this morning, the kingdom of darkness and the power of the adversary was present in this man described as a demoniac. And as these two men face off, one in whom the fullness of deity dwelt, and the other in whom the strength of the forces of evil dwelt, we will see beyond question that, and here's our second point, Jesus has authority over the kingdom of darkness because he is God. Now here we come to our story in Mark 5 this morning. Notice that we have left the previous section of scripture with a question hanging in the air. Who then is this Jesus that even the wind and the seas obey him? You can see that at the end of chapter 4. For those who are able to hear this idea within a greater context of scripture, this question, the answer would already have been understood as we saw last week. But what about those novice hearers of this gospel in the first century? One can imagine the church elder reading through this circulating letter of the gospel according to Mark and coming to this line and pausing. Who then is this Jesus that even the wind and the sea obey him? You can imagine the hearers leaning forward in anticipation. And then the reader continues. Chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Mark gives great detail to paint the scene in the mind of the listener. The storm had passed and the boats arrive at the shore on the eastern side of the lake. Now you will notice if you compare the gospel accounts in Matthew and Luke that Matthew has two demoniacs. And it uh, states that the region is that of, the, of Gadara, not Gerasene. And here it is one de demoniac and it is Gerasa or Gerasene. Again, we need to realize the time and surrounding culture of literature of the day. The overall message and meaning far outweighed incidental details, very much different than our own culture today. Whether it was one or two, we do not know for certain. In either case, the point of the story is the same. Jesus was faced with physical humans in whom the forces of the kingdom of darkness had become present. The spiritual had become physical. In either case, Gadara or Gerasa are used to describe a portion of land that was Gentile and part of the Greek Decapoli. Jesus was coming to a portion of the lake that most Torah-abiding Jews would not want to mess with. Along those lines, the boats come to a place near the lake that has tombs, a graveyard. Again, good Torah-loving Jews would stay away from these areas as they were full of death. The author is trying to breach the subject that Jesus came to enter into even the most remote spaces, to destroy the kingdom of darkness, and bring salvation for all who would call out to him. He has come to bring the kingdom of God to the whole world. Now notice what the author details in characterizing the demoniac. He uses four characteristics. First, he's inhabited by unclean spirits, what we would call demons. They are angelic beings in rebellion against Yahweh's authority. Second, this manifests itself in isolation. He lived among the tombs. The level of superstition of the day would keep most people away. Third, he was out of control. He could not be bound any longer, for he was too strong, so that even chains could be broken apart. Notice that it says, 
no one had the strength to subdue him. In other words, no earthly power or human power could calm him. A little bit of foreshadowing for what Jesus will do. Fourth, he cried out constantly night and day. There was so much warfare and conflict going on inside of him that he cried out for help because he was enslaved to the destructive forces within him. And the destructive power is the demons, the minions of the one who Jesus said comes to kill, steal, and destroy, the liar, the accuser, and the adversary of God. These minions were causing this man to harm himself. But then the author uses this completely unlikely source to answer the question left hanging in the air at the end of chapter 4. Let's look now at chapter 5, verse 6. And when this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. The man rushes over to Christ and falls down before him, and the idea is that he prostrated himself in submission. Now the grammar here is a little bit bumpy because verses 7 and 8 are almost backward. The author tells us that he was telling these demonic forces to come out of the man, and that is why, as he prostrated himself before Jesus, he cried out. Many commentators believe that the demons were attempting to, to manipulate Christ, as it was a known superstitious belief that to know the name and use it of the spiritual force you were battling was to have power over them. But I tend to think the author's main point was simply to show the immediate fear and submitted reverence shown by the demons. This man, Jesus, is the inheritor of the kingdom of God. But even with that, the demons attempt to manipulate him. Notice he says, I adjure you by your father. <laughs> Be nice to us. So Jesus is here pictured as an exorcist of the day would have operated, asking the name of the spiritual powers. But then the author throws in this curveball. Can you imagine the impact on the witnesses when the demon says, My name is Legion? They see this single man, and yet they hear this word. You see, a legion was a term in the Roman vernacular that meant a regiment commanded by a senator of praetorian rank and generally consisting of 5,400 foot soldiers and 120 horsemen. In other words, the man was possessed by an army of demons. Now, this would have meant a ton to the first century Christians hearing this as they had Roman legions surrounding them and within Jerusalem holding on tightly. This idea would have made them picture Jesus fighting against an army similar to the Romans. Immediately, this is no longer a simple exorcism of a singular demon as in chapter 1. This is the Son of God standing firm in authority over a legion of enemy foot soldiers. The author's point comes across loudly. Look at the overwhelming power and authority that Jesus wields over this legion of demonic forces. Then the demon makes an odd request. He says, please don't send me out of the country. What does it matter what country he is in? Well, again, in our current understanding, this makes very little sense. But in the understanding of the day, there was a tying together between nation states the geography in which they existed, and the demonic realm. We've discussed this many times before, but as a refresher, the Bible gives us hints that God, in his sovereignty, can find the demonic spirits to be able to operate in a given locale. To remove them from this locale would be to send them into the abyss or another name for the portion of hell that is the bottomless pit of imprisonment for the rebellious angels. The Gospel according to Luke even has this statement in Luke 8.31. Don't send us into the abyss. 
And so Jesus allows them another option. Look there at verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now recalling the imagery from last week in the mind of the Israelite, it is out of the sea that chaos originates, and in which the forces of chaos are sent to be destroyed. The Jewish person would have the idea of the flood and the Red Sea destroying the demonic forces behind the armies of Pharaoh come immediately to mind. In our Western, pita-driven, bacon-loving mindset, though, we think, how could Jesus do that? But remember the imagery here. The statement here is that the demonic spirits bent on destruction ultimately sent themselves to perdition because of their unwillingness to completely bow the knee in allegiance to Christ. Destruction was their chosen end. For those who do not choose to follow Jesus Christ, it is not a loving God that sends them to hell. It is their choice to not bend the knee in submission and allegiance to Christ that sends themselves to hell. No one makes the choice under the power of God. They make the choice themselves. God doesn't send anyone to hell. He judges their actions, but they themselves choose to do the actions which, which send them to hell. Now look at the response of the witnesses and the man himself in Mark 5.14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Notice that their reaction is similar in phrasing to those in the boat with Jesus in the last section. They were afraid because they understood the implications of this. Jesus was so powerful that he could pacify this man that was too strong to be held, this man who was possessed by an army of demons. Who is this man that even the demons will submit? Well, James talks about this idea of who these demons are and who they think that Jesus is. He references it in this statement in James 2.19. Let me read it for you. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Who was the one before these demons that was making them shudder? The one true God of the Old Testament, come in human form. It's not enough to have a mental assent to believe that Jesus is God. You have to have allegiance to him, submission to his authority. Jesus is Almighty God, the one in whom the creator of the universe condescended himself so that he might die to rescue you and me from the enslavement to the kingdom of darkness. And the author in Mark will tell us the same. Take a look there at Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 16. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapoli how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. It says, Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. In Luke 8.39, it actually says, Tell them how much God has done for you. It's a much more explicit statement. 
So he went away, stating what Jesus had done for him. Notice that he calls God Jesus. Some commentators say, oh, this was confusion, and he was actually acting in disobedience, saying it was Jesus when Jesus had said to say God. But I think the author is actually stating clearly Jesus is God. Because Jesus has the authority over the kingdom of darkness. And the reason is, is because he is God. You see, this text is majestic in its Christological implications. Its focus is Christ and his power over the rebellion of sin and demonic activity. And at its core is the good news of the gospel. Now let me pause here for a moment and say that oftentimes when we look at similar stories to this throughout the gospels or even this story, we have a tendency to focus on the demon. And we worry about the spiritual realm and we hyper-focus on spiritual warfare, like I talked about in the introduction. And oftentimes we even get confused because uh, in our societies, I'll talk about this week, this next week on Sunday, we confuse mental health and demonic oppression and possession. The reality is we need to be very careful with this. And the reason I talk about the Christological implications of this story is that this story is not about the demons. It's about the fact that Jesus is the authority, that he is indeed God, and it presents the gospel to us. And so we need to be really careful on this topic of spiritual warfare. It is one we need to know and one we need to be clear in, but it's not one that we can be flippant about using. And so that's why when I deal with folks who might say that they have a spiritual problem, a spiritual warfare problem, I want to approach it holistically, helping them with their physical, mental, and emotional being. And if all of that works well, then we can look at the spiritual warfare piece, but not before then. Let's not get too focused on the demonic realm above what the story is trying to tell us. This story is trying to tell us the good news of the gospel. And that is our last point, that Jesus has defeated the kingdom of darkness and rescued us from its power. Growing up with the errant end times focused theology I had, it was almost as if Jesus' death and resurrection was good, but what was really going to save us was the rapture. And so all of scripture was twisted and contorted to this end and hope. The old saying I would hear all the time is, there is no problem I have that the rapture can't solve. But dear brothers and sisters, that is a twisted hope with an errant focus. Our hope is not in our escape from our problems. Our hope is in Christ and him crucified. Because of the cross, resurrection, and enthronement, we have nothing to fear, not even death itself. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, the demonic has no power over us. Evil and chaos have no bearing on us. Yes, it surrounds us. Yes, chaos is flailing its arms to grab those that might be entangled by it, but we do not need to fear. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus defeated sin, death, and hell, and because of the blood of Christ, Satan has no hold on those of us who submit under the authority of Christ and his reign. In Mark 1, we saw Jesus push aside the temptations of Satan to rebel against the Father. In Mark 3, we saw the Pharisees accuse Christ of being part of the demonic rebellion, and Christ responded with the simple truth that he had bound the strong man and was now plundering his house. Jesus knew that through his incarnate showing of the kingdom of God and his death and resurrection to come, Satan would be summarily defeated. In his earthly actions, taking place in the physical, 
warfare would be waged in the heavenlies so that Satan's ability to accuse the saints before the throne of God would no longer be possible as it was in the days of Job. When we understand this, that Satan's defeat has already occurred and only his full destruction awaits, it changes the way we read the Bible and it ultimately changes the way we live. Notice how scripture speaks of the defeat of Satan, not as something that is yet to come, but as something that has already occurred. Let's take a look at a few different scriptures to see what I mean. First, let's look at John chapter 12, starting in verse 31. In John 12, 31 through 33, we see this. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Notice that it says now. What is the tense of now? It's present tense. When Jesus spoke it, now is the time the ruler of this world will be cast out. Well, how about the text from our other reading in the morning before the, the uh, text we're studying now, before the teaching? We read from Colossians 1, starting in verse 9. Let's take a look at that. Colossians 1, 9 through 13. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. With joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And again in Colossians 2, verse 13, notice what it says. And you who were dead in trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Notice the tense. Why should we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Because he has delivered us, past tense, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have, current tense, right now, redemption and forgiveness. He has already, past tense, disarmed and triumphed over the spiritual powers, rulers, and authorities. Now look at this statement from the author of Hebrews. This is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Let me turn there. In Hebrews 2, 14, it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What is it that destroyed the power of the accuser? Is it something to come in the future? No, it was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, let's turn back to that odd section of apocalyptic symbolism in Revelation 12, and I want to show you one last piece here. In Revelation 12, starting in verse 7, it says this, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. 
He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. When did this occur? It occurred at the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And what this tells us is that Satan has been cast out of the presence of God, and so he can no longer accuse the saints. For we have the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, the testimony that is our lives handed over to Christ in worship. And these things will never be overcome. Because of the death of Christ, you that have truly submitted your very lives to him as Savior and King can rest in the knowledge that you are his. This truth is what gives us hope. Far more than a simple exorcist power, this truth allows us to stand firm against all the demonic power we see around us and the pull of what we once knew as we joined in that rebellion against God. This truth is what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples in the book of Luke in chapter 10. You can look at Luke 10, 17. In Luke 10, 17, it says that the 72, the disciples that he had sent out to heal and exercise demons in his name, they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He says, don't glory that you are able to perform some measly exorcisms. Glory in the fact that you're born again to a living hope and a knowledge of eternal forgiveness and salvation. In our text last week, we discussed how we were watering down the power of its message to simply make it a meme of therapeutic encouragement that Jesus will get us through the storms in life. Its message was so much more powerful that Jesus has authority over the chaos that seeks to destroy us and that by the cross, he has already defeated it. We are simply awaiting the fullness of that truth. Today, we find the same thing. To turn this into a simplistic story of exorcism is to miss its primary purpose and its fullness of power. Jesus was not some priest with holy water. Jesus is preeminent. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. No heavenly or physical being can stand before his powerful reign. He is Almighty God. He is the conquering king who has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. You see, this story illustrates all that is true about the saving work of Jesus Christ. It is a story about citizenship, submission, and allegiance. This human man, the demoniac, was overcome and submitted to the kingdom of darkness to such an extent that he was the very incarnation of the demonic rebellion. And when you and I give into our flesh that desires to isolate, self-protect, to accuse, to abuse, and act in willful rebellion against authority, we are giving our allegiance to that kingdom that Christ came to defeat, a kingdom that is already defeated. But the power of Christ is so preeminent, so powerful, that even this man, overcome with the demonic, was able to cry out for rescue. And by the power of Christ, he was taken from this place of incarnate evil and brought into a place of restoration. He was clothed in his right mind and able to rejoin society. The very marks of demonic possession were now removed. The bad news that the Bible gives us is that from our first parents on down to you and I, 
all of mankind has taken part in joining the demonic rebellion against the rightful authority of our Creator God. And while you and I were not possessed by demonic armies, we deserve a worse fate, because in our selfish actions and words, we have freely chosen to take part in the kingdom of darkness. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that he is the victorious king that by his power is able to defeat the adversary and all who follow him and transfer us into the kingdom of light. He's able to do so because he gave his own life in your place and mine. By the power of his blood, the accuser who rightly accuses us for our sin is left powerless, unable to accuse, because we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ and made righteous in the sight of God. And now we walk, not white-knuckling righteousness, but we walk in the identity we have been given. Paul echoes this beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Dear brothers and sisters, you and I were this man, enslaved to our allegiance in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of self. But we have been set free because of Christ. And so Christ's imperative, Christ's command to this man is the same to you and me. Go home to your friends, to your co-workers, to your neighbors, to your classmates, to your children, and tell them how much God has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. See, dear church, this story gives us the text of our own salvation and the proclamation that we can each make when asked for the reason behind the hope that we display with our lives. If I were to use this text to understand and reflect my own salvation and testimony, it would sound like this. And listen, and judge for yourself whether this is the demoniac or me, because it's the truth of my testimony. I was enslaved to sin and destruction, not in my right mind, hell-bent on selfishness and insanity, isolated from God and other people, unwilling to bring my brokenness into the light that I might be saved, unwilling to bow the knee to the God that made me, unwilling to submit to the church he purchased by his blood. But when I saw Christ, when I grasped the power that was in his authority, purchased with his own blood on the cross, given in my place, when I grasped the warfare that he had endured that he might make me his own, when I saw the power of his resurrection, I gave my life and allegiance to him. I sat at his feet and asked that I might follow him as his disciple, and my life has never been the same as I grow in the knowledge of his commands. He has forgiven me of my sin. He has had mercy on me when I deserved none. And he has made me his child, his friend, his disciple, and a citizen of his eternal kingdom. I want to ask you today, do you know what Christ has done for you, dear friend? I wonder if it is, if it is possible that the reason so many Christians are unable to preach the gospel is because they don't truly believe in what Christ has done for them. They're still waiting for Jesus to do something, 
like rapture them, or make all their pains better. Are you one of those people today? Is the gospel good news that has to be memorized as if it were an academic fact? Or is the gospel the truth of your life, easily expressed in gratitude as one who was facing eternal destruction, but was saved by the overwhelming grace and mercy of Christ? This week, dear church, this is your task. As individuals sit down with paper and pen or your computer or your phone and write out what Christ has done for you. Write it that it might come easily when the situation arises. And pray over it that the Lord might use it with someone near you, that they might also know what it is to experience the authority of Jesus Christ over the kingdom of darkness.